Hi, writers. Welcome to our new episode on the craft of writing fiction, both novels and short stories. This is Jim Thayer. Let's talk about a synopsis, a tool that you will likely need when you begin to market your novel. A synopsis is a brief summary of your novel. It's a Word document that you, when the time is right, that you'll email to agents or publishers as an attachment to an email. Most agencies and publishers want to see from us writers as our first contact only a query email. Uh, I've talked about uh, queries in an earlier episode. Uh, The agencies or the publishers' websites or the text guide to literary agents will say to send a query email. Don't send anything more if that's what they say. Don't send a synopsis with your query email unless it is asked for in the agency's website or in Guide to Literary Agents. But a number of agencies want the query and a synopsis as your first submission. Or, often, in response to your query, the agency or publisher may ask to see a synopsis. In either event, it's good to have a synopsis ready to send them. Uh, Usually the agency or publisher's website will specify that the synopsis should be two pages, or it might say three or four or five pages. We should send the length they want and not one word more. Uh, Let me suggest that the shorter is better. If the website says three to five pages, consider making it three. Stephen King wrote, Brevity makes sweetness, doesn't it? If the agent doesn't say how long your synopsis should be, consider making it three pages. Here are some techniques about writing a synopsis. First, about the format. Some agency websites say to double-space the document, others to single-space. Make sure to look for this instruction on the web page or in the email they have sent you and follow it single space or double space. Margins of of your synopsis of the document should be one inch on all four sides, left and right, top and bottom. Your novel is probably written in the past tense. He ran to the helicopter. A synopsis is written in the present tense. He runs to the helicopter. At the top of the synopsis, uh, centered, the, the right synopsis, and then under that, the title, Moby Dick, and then under that, by, and under that, your name. That's all centered at the top of the first page. Uh, don't try to squeeze in more words on your allotted three pages by reducing the font or making the margins wider, uh, 12-point font and one-inch margins all around. That's the industry standard. Uh, Don't divide your synopsis by chapters. We should write one unified account of the story. Uh, Unlike a query letter, which may only reveal the setup to the story, the synopsis tells the novel's entire story. It tells who done it. 
we shouldn't presume the agent has our query email in front of her. In other words, include the entire story, even if the setup was mentioned in the query. How can we condense a 300- or 400-page novel into a 3-page, 4-page synopsis? We should focus on our protagonist, our story's hero. Uh, The story's main plot is her and her journey through the story. Uh, Concentrate on her problems, her goals and her challenges, the obstacles, we should write about the story's essential details. In our novel, there will be smaller storylines and lesser characters that we can't get into a three-page synopsis. That's okay. We should also, in our synopsis, go light on our hero's backstory, her history. The synopsis, synopsis should focus on the story, not the backstory. Uh, Include in the synopsis the setting, even a brief description, which will put a time and a place to the story, and it will also set the tone. Uh, Don't try to pump up the book with statements such as, this will appeal to readers of historicals, or readers love noir detective stories, or something like, there hasn't been a World War I family drama published recently, anything like these. Uh, these are telling the agent or publisher her business, and they don't like it, and, and they don't need it. Uh, in the synopsis, don't include your biography. That'll be apparent in your query letter. Uh, regarding the sentence-by-sentence writing, Focus on nouns and verbs with active sentences and leave out most adverbs and adjectives. As with the query letter, your synopsis is a first impression. It might be the second impression after your query. You want it to be free of typos and other errors. Proofread it and then double proofread it. My experience is that after I've worked hard on a writing project, Mistakes such as typos become invisible to me. I'll read it a couple times and I'll miss them. I just don't see them, even though I'm trying to read proofread closely. So really proofread closely. Uh, Maybe have someone else proofread it. Uh, A synopsis has other uses after you've sold the novel to a publisher. Uh, The publisher's advertising department and art department's will likely want a synopsis. They don't have the time to read the whole novel. They want the gist of the novel for the artwork and the uh, dust jacket prose. You may find that writing a synopsis is invigorating. There's something good in being able to reduce a story to its essentials and communicate it with force. That's what a synopsis does. Uh, The author Michelle Zink has written a number of popular and good novels. Her first novel was Prophecy of Sisters. That was his title. On her blog, Michelle Zink shared her synopsis she had submitted for her novel Prophecy of Sisters, which was earlier named Indigo Sky. So let me read Michelle Zink's synopsis for her novel Prophecy of Sisters. It's a good one. 16-year-old Leah Milthorpe's life is in danger from the person she loves most, 
her twin sister. It's 1890, and Leah and Alice Milthorpe are orphaned twins reeling from the mysterious death of their father and working to cheer their crippled younger brother, Henry. After their father's sparsely attended funeral, they return two days a week to Wycliffe, a private school for wealthy girls, and attempt to settle into some kind of normalcy. But Leah's reality begins to unravel with sensory-rich dreams that occur more and more frequently, bringing with them a winged demon that chases her through the velvet sky of her nightmares. The dreams are followed by the discovery of an unusual mark on the inside of her wrist, that of a serpent devouring its own tail. The strange happenings make Leah long to long to confide in her sister, but Alice becomes more and more withdrawn, and Leah resolves to find the answers on her own. But it is only when James discovered, discovers an ancient tome entitled Librian Malafeli et Disordine, or The Book of Chaos, that Leah begins to understand the timeless battle of which she is a part, the battle between the demonic lost souls, fallen angels of the biblical watchers, and those who try to shield the physical world from their reappearance. The prophecy outlined in the book dictates that the battle continues through a long line of sisters. In each generation, one sister is the guardian and one the gate. The guardian is tasked with shielding the physical world from the reappearance of the souls. The gate is the pathway back that will begin the seven plagues outlined in the biblical book of Revelations. Leah becomes certain she is the guardian and her sister the gate. When she discovers that a beautiful young psychic and an outcast from Wycliffe both bear the mark, the three girls set out to unravel the prophecy's riddle and discover how they might guard the world from the gate. The task is great enough and is made greater still when Leah discovers the truth hidden in the prophecy's riddle, a truth that will call into question everything she believed she knew about her sister and herself. And now there is so much more at stake. For if Leah cannot find before her sister the keys foretold in the prophecy, she may lose more than her sanity. She, she may lose her very life, sacrificing the lives of those she loves most in the process. Her journey takes her to the shadowy astral plane of the other worlds, to the nether reaches of the spirit world, and to the face of evil itself. That's Michelle Zink. Boy, is that a good synopsis. It's just terrific. Um, it's missing one thing that I would have added had I written the synopsis, and that's the ending, another sentence or two telling what happened. Uh, her synopsis doesn't tell the ending of the story. But I don't second-guess this, as it's a very good, it's an exciting synopsis, fairly begging the synopsis reader to ask for the novel, the whole novel. That's from Michelle Zink. What a good job. So these are some thoughts on, on a synopsis. I find writing them to be work. Not as much fun as writing the novel, but I've always been happy to get the synopsis done. It's bracing to have summarized the novel in three or four pages. 
and the synopsis can be an important marketing tool. Let's take a quick break. Hey guys, this is your girl Liram, and you're listening to Self Reflection Podcast. Thank you guys for joining me on another episode of Self Reflection Podcast. I hope this podcast episode finds you in the best possible state that you can be in for yourself today. Um, you know, and if you're not doing your best, I hope you know you find some time to care for your mental health, physical health, emotional health, spiritual health, and your psychological health. You know, I hope you find some time to do some self reflection. Um, just gather yourself and, you know, find the best possible way you can deal with what you're dealing with in this moment, right? If you are finding these episodes useful, please consider supporting the show by hitting the support the show link in the episode description below. It'll take you to a Patreon site. It'd be much appreciated. Thank you. Can artificial intelligence write fiction? In an earlier episode, I talked about generative artificial intelligence, chat GPT and Google's Bard and the others. I said they can help us writers research. It sure can do that. I've been using it. And it's progress for us writers. But can artificial intelligence help us write or more bluntly, can artificial intelligence write fiction? As an experiment, I asked Google's generative AI called Bard, I, asked, I gave it this prompt. Please write a 200-word short story involving a veterinarian who doesn't think he has the skill to perform surgery on the famous racehorse New Dawn. I'm going to read its 200-word response, which brings to mind Dr. Johnson's quotation about a, about a dog walking on its hind legs. Dr. Johnson said, It is not done well, but you are surprised to find it done at all. That's true about generative artificial intelligence. It's surprising that it can create a short story about a veterinarian and a racing horse, uh, this short story produced by Bard is written at a, an elementary school level. I didn't ask it to do that. It just did it. And it contains dull dialogue and, and primitive interior monologue. I might have been unfair asking it to limit it to, to 200 words, but I suspected, and I was right, that 200 words is all I could stand reading. Uh, so here it is. This is uh, the generative artificial intelligence Bard's 200-word story. The veterinarian, Dr. Smith, stood in the operating room staring at the famous racehorse, New Dawn. The horse was lying on the table, its leg, its leg injured in a recent race. Dr. Smith had been called in to perform surgery, but he was feeling very uncertain about his abilities. He had never performed surgery on a horse before, let alone one as famous as New Dawn. I don't know if I can <laughs> I don't know if I can do this, Dr. Smith said to his assistant. This is a lot of pressure. You can do it, his assistant said. You're the best veterinarian in the country. You've performed surgery on hundreds of animals before. This is just another one. Dr. Smith took a deep breath and nodded. Okay, he said, I'll do it. 
Dr. Smith began the surgery, and it was more difficult than he had expected. The horse was restless, and the injury was more serious than he had thought. But Dr. Smith persevered, and after several hours, he was able to successfully complete the surgery. When the surgery was over, Dr. Smith was exhausted, but he was also relieved. He had done it. He had saved New Dawn's leg. The next day, the owner of New Dawn came to visit the horse. He was overjoyed to see that his horse was recovering well. Thank you, Dr. Smith, the owner said. You saved New Dawn's career. Dr. Smith smiled. It was my pleasure, he said. I'm just glad I could help. Dr. Smith walked out of the barn, feeling a sense of satisfaction. He had done his job, and he had done it well. He knew that he would never forget the day he saved New Dawn's leg. That's the end of the story. That a computer can do this is dumbfounding. It's, it's remarkable. But like Dr. Johnson's dog walking on its hind feet, it's not done well, but it's surprising it can be done at all. I suspect uh, generative artificial intelligence will get better and better at writing. But should we writers be afraid of artificial intelligence? Uh, the technologist and venture capitalist Mark Andreessen wrote in the free press about artificial intelligence, and this part of his essay applies to writers. This is Mark Andreessen. The creative arts will enter a golden age as AI augmented artists, musicians, writers, and filmmakers gain the ability to realize their visions far faster and at greater scale than ever before. That's Mark Andreessen. I sure hope he's right. In an earlier episode, I asked what made you want to write? What episode in your life lit the fuse? I've heard from some listeners, and I really enjoy learning how it happened to them. Just today, I received an email from 15-year-old Taj. He writes, My aspiration to become an author began in primary school when I stapled together a few pages and wrote about talking dragons. I showed them to my parents and teachers, and they asked for more. So I began developing a whole saga, each an improvement on the last that I still have in a drawer to this day. That's from Taj, who is 15. Isn't that lovely? Isn't that how it works for us writers? Something or someone taps us on the shoulder and says, you should write. You can write. I'd like to hear how you learned you wanted to write. You can let me know at jimthayerseattle at gmail. Dot com. I love these stories about, about how it began. Someone tapped Charles Dickens on the shoulder. S same with Jody Picoult and John Grisham. We're really glad it happened to them. It's happened to us, too. I would like to mention again a good, a really good, indeed it's a high-end writing technique, and that is eliminating filters. Many, many, many new writers don't know about filters, and we writers should use as few filters as possible. John Gardner, in his book, The Art of Fiction, talks about filtering. He calls it, quote, the needless filtering of the image through some observing consciousness, 
That's John Gardner. He went on to say that the amateur writes, she noticed two snakes fighting in among the rocks. Uh, Compare that to two snakes were fighting in among the rocks. Uh, Generally, though no laws are absolute in fiction, vividness urges that almost every occurrence of such phrases as she noticed and she saw and he heard be suppressed in favor of direct presentation of the thing seen. That's John Gardner. The filter's a common fault. The writer asks the reader to look at rather than look through the character. They ran to a tree is stronger than Joe noticed them running to the tree. Here, uh, Joe noticed is a filter. The marching band music was loud is stronger than she heard the marching band's loud music, where she heard is a filter. The semi-truck driver climbed down from the cab is stronger than He saw the semi-truck driver climb down from the cab where he saw is the filter. The problem with filters is that they put distance between the reader and the story's action. Uh, With a filter, the reader watches the character watch the action instead of the reader watching the action directly. Uh, A filter is an unneeded layer which creates distance between the reader and the story. Here's a 200-word scene it's only part of a scene, that is larded with filters. I'll read it once with all the filters. See if you can see them. Then I'll go through it again and point out the filters. Notice the distance between the reader and the action caused by the injection of Paul's consciousness, which is the filters. His tie too tight and his shoes polished to mirrors, Paul walked onto the gym floor. His impression was that the gym was crowded. He noticed that his pals Jerry and Alex were standing by the drinking fountain. He saw them wave at him and gesture for him to join them. But first he wanted to locate Brooke. Maybe he could find the courage to ask her to dance. He heard the DJ introduce the next song. He listened as the PA system squawked like it did at basketball games. He saw Brooke over by the basketball hoop. He watched as she leaned toward her friends, laughing and chatting. It seemed to Paul that she was wearing the gold heart he had given her for Valentine's Day. He saw her look at him, then quickly look away. Maybe she was avoiding him. He was aware that Jerry and Alex were watching him. They would tease him if he didn't approach Brooke. He saw them make funny faces at him and noticed that Jerry had tucked his hands under his armpits and was flapping his elbows, the chicken gesture. He heard Alex call, Go for it, Paul. Hear all the filters? Uh, We aren't watching the action. We're watching Paul watch the action with all these filters. I'm going to list the the filters here, and I'll mention them. Uh, His his. Tie too tight and his shoes polished to mirrors. Paul walked onto the floor. Here's the first filter. His impression was that. Well, we know it's his impression without writing that because Paul has the point of view. Anything seen or heard is his impression. Uh, The gym was crowded. 
He noticed that his pals Jerry and Alex, well, he noticed as a filter. The sentence should just be, his pals Jerry and Alex were standing by the drinking fountain. He saw them wave at him. He saw them as a filter. Instead, it should be, they waved at him. He heard the DJ introduce the next song. He heard as a, as a filter. Uh, it's better to write, the DJ introduced, introduced the next song. He listened as the PA system squawked. He listened as a filter. We should write, the PA system squawked. We know that Paul is hearing this and seeing these things because Paul has a point of view. We don't have to remind the reader. He saw Brooke over by the basketball hoop, where he saw as a filter. He watched as she leaned toward her friends, where he watched as a filter. It seemed to Paul that is a filter in the sentence. He seemed, it seemed to Paul that she was wearing the gold heart. We don't need that it seemed to Paul because everything he sees is seeming to him. He saw her look at him. Where he saw her is a filter. Instead, it should be she looked at him. He was aware that Jerry and Alex were watching him. Where he was aware is a filter. It isn't needed because Paul has the point of view. Anything seen or heard is him being aware. He saw them make funny faces, where he saw them as a filter. Uh, it's better just to say they made funny faces. And the last one, he heard Alex call, go for it, Paul, where he heard, he heard is the filter. And it should just be Alex called, go for it, Paul. Once in a while, a filter is fine, particularly to remind the reader who has the point of view. Most of the time, though, a story will be more immediate. It'll be closer to the reader without filters. We have come to the end of this episode. I'm glad you were here for it. Uh, until next time, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys. <laughs>